I'm going to pray again real quickly before we jump in to the Word here. Father, uh, Your Word is truth, and we need Your Spirit's work in us to make that truth um, desirable, applicable. Would You uh, open the eyes of our heart to see the things You want to speak to each one of us? Lord, help us not to take burdens You're not putting on us on one hand, on the other hand, help us not to leave a sort of unopened the message you might have for each of us this morning too. So help us to hear your word, and then Lord, help us to be faithful to do it in the way that applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings 21 is the beginning of the wind down of the life of the wickedest of the kings in Israel, Ahab. And I want to just to set up this morning tell you just a little bit about the story that occurs in that chapter. Um, Ahab owns some property, and adjacent to his property is his neighbor Naboth. And Naboth's got a family vineyard there. And, and it's been in the family, we don't know how long, but probably for some extensive period of time. And King Ahab looks at that little parcel of land, and he says to Naboth, hey neighbor, I'd like that. I'd like to make a vegetable garden. Your plot of land's just what I'm looking for. And so, if you want, I'll give you a better vineyard than this one. And, and if not, I'll just buy it outright from you. Now, Naboth's a godly guy. And, and we know that because his response to the king is this, far be it from me that I would give up my family's heritage. Because for a Jew in the land of promise to hold on to the heritage that came from your father, and his father before, that was a big deal, to be connected to the land by birthright. And so Naboth says, no thanks. So King Ahab goes home, and he's a little upset about this, and he's a bit of a whiner and a crier. And so when his wife, wicked Queen Jezebel, comes in, and she sees obviously things are amiss, King Ahab boo-hoos, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And so wicked Queen Jezebel says, well, honey, you just leave that to me. And so she sends in the king's name with the king's stamp a letter to the men of Naboth's village. And she told them to do something. And this is from the text. This is what they did. This is their obedience to Jezebel's request or command, as it were. This is 1 Kings 21.11. Uh, the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the people. Two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead." Jezebel wanted something for her husband, and so she resorted to what the Bible calls a false witness, what we typically today call slander, lies about another person to their harm to get what she wanted. And that brings up the issue that we're looking at today. It's one of the six things God hates, seven things God abhors, and today God hates, God abhors a false witness. We're in week seven of the seven-week series by the way, we're trying out a little different venue in your paperwork this morning. So your study sheet is actually the jacket. And then your bulletin is actually 
this little half sheet cardstock. So don't you love going to church where the first thing you see when you come in is God hates in big, bold, black letters. Wow, what was I thinking? (laughs) Good grief. Kenny was passing these out gleefully to me on my way in here this morning, so thanks to that. I didn't really think what that would look like. But you know, related to that, uh, it's because of the age and uh, in some cases because of the city that we live in that if you say God hates, it sounds like an assault, you're on the wrong side of the tracks, what's with you, you small-minded bigot, right? But God hates is part of the language of the Bible. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride, arrogance, and the way of evil. You guys know, if you've been here on previous weeks, when we're saying God hates, there are things God says He hates emphatically. He's not shy about this. And the things He hates, God says they're evil things. They're contrary to His nature, His goodness, and His will. And so for us as Christians, the longer we grow in the faith, one of the things that should be part of that transformation process is that we grow more and more over time to hate what God hates. And the opposite of that, of course, which is the way we wind up each one of these week's messages, to love what God loves. But if the Spirit of God is at work in us, if we're believers, the Spirit of God is at work in us, and He uses the truth of the Word, and He uses the involvement we have with other believers, one of the fruits of that transformation process should be that we hate evil. We hate the things God hates And we love the things God loves. So this morning, back in Proverbs 6, verses 16, I'll read this morning through 19a. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and this morning a false witness who breathes out lies. God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. If we're talking about something that's false, we're talking about deception. It's fraud. It's something that I say that is simply wrong. It's an untruth. The term witness in this context is important. Uh, This isn't just lying, right? Slander or false witness is a lie but it's a particular kind of lie. And this is a lie against someone else. So if I'm called into a court of law, I'm called as a witness. And it's really imperative in some type of law setting or a hearing. Someone has a grievance. Someone needs a wrong to be righted. Someone needs to have someone else stand up by rule of law and say, I'm in the, I've been wronged and I need someone to intervene for me. And it's in this setting that this is the lies are being set. It's a false witness in the setting in which someone needs justice. So lies in the sense of a court setting. It says here, God hates the false witness that breathes out lies. So have you heard the phrase, if someone's lips moving, they're lying. You know, was he lying? Well, were his lips moving? Well, for this person, it's, were they breathing? If they were breathing, they were lying. So the false witness, this person is characterized by lies, and when he's called to bear witness, to bring testimony to whatever it is that's going on, if he's breathing, we assume he's lying. And again, it ends with lies, a false witness that breathes out lies. 
So if we extrapolate this, if we add a few more adjectives and we say, what does this look like? God hates a deceitful, fraudulent, false witness who when called as a witness to present the truth instead subverts justice with lies, doing violence to the one in need of justice, uttering untruths and falsehoods as normally as breathing. Back to sort of the setup of this passage generally. Um, We've said the payoff, in fact, I hope this series has been challenging for you, it's been challenging for me. But the first six, six things that God says He hates, these were obvious when He said this. These are the blackest of the sins. So the reason God does this is when we get to the seventh, God is going to say, the seventh thing that's not a big deal in your mind, it's as black in my view as these obviously gross evils. That's the payoff, is the seventh one. But it's obvious to them that false witness is a terrible, horrendous thing. And because of that, sometimes when you and I go through this list, we say, well, I've never been called to court. I've never gone and testified falsely against someone else. I haven't done this. But what we want to do so that the text is helpfully applicable to us is we want to nuance what are the issues that are wrapped up in this obviously grotesque sin or evil and in what ways can we then extrapolate those elements and apply them to our own life in a helpful way. Because for the Jews, when they heard this, it's a given. Absolutely, that's obviously an evil, wicked thing God hates, and so should I. So we want to render false witnessing and slanders against others in such a way that we see it the way God sees it, and we see its lesser versions so we can apply it to ourselves. So looking at the way God thinks of false witness, primarily here from the Old Testament, Psalm 140, verse 11. You'll have, I think, most of the verses we cover this morning on your study sheet. I hope you have that. Uh, Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. Now, this is a parallel phrase. The slanderer in the first part of the verse is the violent man in the second part of the verse. God says that a false witness is a person doing violence to someone else. They're not doing it physically, though. They're doing it verbally. It's violence with words. So the slanderer, the false witness, and the violent man, they're the same person. Slander is a violence against another person merely brought about by our words. Exodus 20.16 is the ninth of the ten words or the ten commandments. God said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's the same language out of Proverbs 6. Don't do that against your neighbor. Exodus 23.6 says, don't pervert the justice due your poor in his lawsuit. You can imagine if a poor man and a wealthy man are in a lawsuit, the wealthy man appears to have more prestige, he has greater social standing, and so the temptation would be, When the rich and the poor come for judgment, more credibility is going to be given to the wealthy man. And so God says, when the poor stands in your court seeking justice, don't subvert the justice due the poor. Keep far from a false charge. When the poor man has brought his case, 
don't entertain false charges against the poor man or for the wealthy man. Take no bribe. The whole thought here is, in the court of law, when the poor man brings his suit, he has no other means by which justice will be done for him unless the city, the polis, the whatever the legal system is there, entertains his issue for him. So it says, when this guy, you're his only hope of justice, don't you subvert justice in his case by entertaining a false charge or taking a bribe. False witness in the courtroom. Leviticus 19.11 says, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Lying to or about one another is a way we deal falsely. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I don't know if they still do this in the courtrooms, uh, but at least in the old Perry Masons, you know, the witness takes the stand, they raise their right hand, they, I think the right hand, put the left hand on the Bible and they, sweat, they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. You are saying, in God's name, the testimony I give is true. God says, don't you stand up and in my name proclaim something as true that you know is a lie. Don't attach my name to your false witness. Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Do you see there again that God says, when you slander someone with your words, you are in fact doing violence against their life. The thing about sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Absolutely. How many lives, if we tallied up here just among the people we know and the incidents we're aware of, how many lives have been wrecked by words? Just words. False words. Deuteronomy 19.18, this is in a case setting again, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. God says if you bear false witness against your neighbor and it's found out that the, the nation was to exercise upon you the judgment you were attempting to get against your neighbor. That was a serious charge. It would make you think twice, wouldn't it? If you said, I've been found out and the evil I tried to do against someone else is now going to be brought down on my own head. You've got a couple more verses there out of Proverbs I'll let you read on your own. God hates lying words used to do violence or to the destruction of others. Maybe at this point it doesn't apply to anyone here. We've never intentionally slandered someone. We've never gone out and made it our aim that I'm going to tell lies about another person to their harm. That's my goal. So what are some variations on the theme? What do the lesser gradations of this look like? What do the incipient phases of this look like? So there's a couple elements here. One is we're lying to harm someone else. There's an intention about harming someone else. It also has to do with communication that lacks, at least, this is at least, it lacks key elements of truth such that someone's reputation, their cause, their livelihood, or their life is unjustly harmed. So we might, we could err in a couple different ways on this. 
um, the desire to harm one is part of it, and the use of lies is the other. And there's variations on this theme for all of us. So when we're saying, what, what do the elements of this look like? I may not do the worst of this. Maybe I never will. But what do lesser variations of that theme look like? So, for instance, do you and I repeat negative stories we've heard about someone else which we do not know to be true? Do you and I, as members of the rumor mill, end up continuing a story, a negative story, negative incident about someone else that we ourselves do not know to be true? When we're sharing unflattering stories about someone else, what is our heart's motive? If I'm sharing an unflattering story about someone else, what am I getting out of it? Why am I doing that? Do I gain a certain kind of pleasure by sharing what is unflattering about someone else? You know, related to this, you know, when God says our hearts are wicked beyond our own finding out, guys, part of the thing about the human heart is whether this is typical of you or not, our carnal heart delights in evil towards others if it makes us feel better about ourselves. So if you sit here this morning and say, I've never slandered anyone else, it doesn't mean that we're going to be free of the kinds of things that start on that path. Our hearts, our corrupt hearts that God has saved us from, thankfully, given a new nature, a new set of desires, but that old set of desires, we take a certain kind of evil delight in bad news. In news that paints an unflattering picture of someone else. We get a certain oomph out of that. And that's why tabloids sell. And that's why tabloid TV sells. Because we've got this salacious desire to hear the dirty laundry about someone else. It somehow makes us feel better. That's part of the old wiring. That's part of the old software that you and I have. There's a tendency to that. So when I'm sharing a story that's a negative about someone else, what's the motive of my heart? And if I'm getting this little trickle of pleasure in that, that's a warning for me. I'm treading on the trail God says He hates, this evil trail of false witnessing. When we're called to speak the truth to or about someone else, do we in fact tell the truth? Do we tell the whole truth? I'm called to bear witness. Do I tell the truth? When others verbally gang up on someone else, do I join in? This is rampant, by the way, today. You know what more communication means for us as a culture? It means more sin. It means more sin in the way of our words. So we can talk to each other in a multitude of ways before. It used to be face-to-face only, right? And you could write letters. I'm thinking through the ages, right? And then telephones, and now text, and the internet, and Skype, and on and on it goes. It's all forms of communication, and sinful people do what with forms of communication? We sin with forms of communication. We've got more ability today to sin with the use of our words than ever in the history of the world. And if you look at the way we use words and use our mechanisms for communication today, it's clear that we're a corrupt culture and we sin, at least in the incipient ways, that have to do with this slander and false witnessing about others. So, if someone's ganging up, this is maybe 
uh, bullies on the playground or at school. I don't know what your history looks like, but where the gang is against the one person and you know it's the predators against the prey and this person's we're all out just to harm this person. Do we do that verbally? And of course this goes to Facebook and it goes to emails and it goes person to person, but it's all of those. Do I use those mechanisms, those technologies, which are fine in and of themselves, but do I use them? Am I part of ganging up on someone else to their harm? How about this one? When I'm in conflict and I want you to know the truth of what's going on in the conflict of my life with someone else, do I shade the truth? Do I paint myself in the most flattering light possible at your expense if I'm talking to someone else? This is what he said and this is the godly response I had. This is what she said. This is the low down dirty thing she did to me. And this was my humble, godly response. Do you shade the truth? Do I shade the truth when I'm talking about a situation I might want help with or affirmation or support on? Am I coloring the interaction? Would the other person acknowledge my version as true? One of the things that's helpful to me is if I'm talking about someone else to ask myself if they were here listening, would I say it or would I say it this way? Would they affirm what I'm saying? That would be a good truth check on whether I'm shading something or not. Uh, We know from this series that evil starts in the heart. Do we entertain conversations in our mind Do we entertain hurtful words and attitudes about other people such that in our unguarded, typically angry moments, those unholy words come out? This is something we've got to watch over our heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4. The words that come out, they're coming from our heart. Are we entertaining in our heart lies, falsehoods of one variation or another against other people such that I've primed myself to let those out in an unguarded moment? Guys, this is the thing too. There are few sins that are just absolutely as wicked and as evil and as fully from the pit of hell as slander and false witness. And if you put this in the context of God Himself, when you go back into the Garden of Eden in the story of the temptation, God is the first person slandered and born false witness against in the Bible. Because Satan impugns God's character to Adam and Eve. That's part of the temptation. Satan slanders God in the temptation. And when God the Son comes on the earth, there's no legitimate charge that can be brought against Him, of course, by the Jewish religious leaders. So what do they do when God Himself, the epitome, the essence of truth, shows up on the planet, but the religious leaders want to get rid of Him because He's messing with their show? What do they do? They resort to the same thing Satan did in the garden. They resort to slander and false witness. So Matthew 14, verse 56 and 57, when Jesus stands before the Jewish leadership, many bore false witness against Him. The truth wouldn't suit their purposes, so they'll resort to false witnesses. So they're breaking the commandment of God on one hand while claiming to be God's representatives on the other. Matthew 26.60 says the same thing. Many false witnesses came forward. 
And you know, these guys should have known better because they knew their Bible. They knew the old, what we would call the Old Testament. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are messianic. That is, they have, they have uh, portions of their text clearly spoke about the Messiah. And Psalm 69.4 said, those who attack me with lies. That's messianic. That had to do with Jesus. Psalm 109 verse 2, wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. When you and I resort to slander and false witness at any level, we are dealing in the sin that Satan specializes in and used against God in the fall and used against our Savior. Do you see how distasteful this thing is? How yucky it is such that we should, ha- we should want to have absolutely nothing to do with any form, any version of spreading news about someone else that either we don't know to be true or that isn't in some way helpful and needful. When the church's first witness, you guys know in the Greek the term martyr just means witness. When Stephen was called to bear witness to Christ, to martyr for Christ, it's the same as Jesus. He stands before the same group, matter of fact. And they do the same thing. In other words, when Satan in religious garb is trying to do away with God and with God's representatives, he resorts to false witness and slander. And so in Stephen's case in Acts 6, they secretly instigated men who said... See, this is a a series of lies that have already been engineered before Stephen walks into the court to get his day in court in a fair hearing. It says, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. They set up, verse 13, false witnesses. So when you and I deal in any of its variations with false witness and slander, either specifically lies or spreading things about others with the intention of harming them or simply not exercising the standard of care in communicating things about someone else that we would want exercised on our behalf, we have started on the trail of this evil that God hates. When we lie about others, when we speak of others with malice in our hearts, when we uncritically spread rumors about others that reflect poorly on them, we're walking the same path as the slanderer. We're practicing a variation of the evil that God hates. That would be a good thing to avoid. We've talked about the antidote each week, what's the opposite? If God hates that, what does He love? Well, as we shift gears that way, there's a few things we don't want to do. We don't want to deal in lies. We just say, don't tell lies. If we just start there and end there, we would be good, right? It doesn't matter if it's about others, if it's about myself, just don't tell lies. Uh, tell the truth regarding others. And tell the truth, Lord willing, in all the ways that can be helpful. That head, that aim towards peace. A don't or avoid conversations in which you know you'll be tempted to speak at someone else's expense. You guys probably know there are people, there are conversations I should simply avoid because I know they always head south. It always ends negative. So if I'm in that setting and I can't get away, when it turns south, say something. Change the subject. Walk away. Don't be part of that. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are very similar. They ask the same kind of question. David says in Psalm 15, Lord, who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? Lord, who can hang out with you? 
Who can walk side by side with you and call you friend? Who do you like to hang out with? The answer is he walks blamelessly and does what's right. He speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against his friend. That's the kind of person God's looking for to hang out with. They don't slander. They're not about advancing negative stories about others that aren't helpful. Psalm 24 is the same thing. To hate what God hates, to love what God loves, we must have done with speech to or about others that's either untrue or communicated with malice or it's unnecessary, it's unhelpful. We have talked, matter of fact, about this theme multiple times. Uh, the second of the sixth thing God hates from verse 17 in Proverbs 6. If you weren't here on that Sunday, God hates a lying tongue. Follows up on the same theme. Uh, April 14, 2002, Speaking the Truth in Love is a teaching you can still hear online. And don't slander from the series The Ten Words or The Ten Commandments from April 29, 2012, also online. I'd refer you to those if you're thinking about this this week. So, we know that slander and false witnessing at the end of the day, it's about doing violence. It's about doing harm, violence verbally to someone else. So, there's another kind of violence that I hope that you and I will aspire to though. And it's the violence of the righteous. The violence of the righteous. I know that sounds oxymoronic, but stick with me for just a minute. If the goal of slander is to tear someone else down, it's to do violence to them in a destructive way, we should be using words to build others up, right? That would be the goal. That we want to use our words to and about other people in a way that's helpful to them. David said this in Psalm 141, verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness... Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is parallel thought again. The striking in the first part of the verse is the verbal rebuke. This is the violence of the righteous. It's reproof. It's rebuke. It's correction. So David said, I want the righteous to do violence to me by reproving me, by speaking to me correctively or challenging me when they see me or some element of my life moving out of God's will. The violence of the righteous is the willingness to speak words of reproof or correction, or simply questions that challenge or clarify to those folks we're interacting with. Proverbs 27.6 says it this way, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, when we say this, David, by the way, back at Psalm 141, said, let my head not refuse it. That reproof, he said, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's as if someone poured oil over my head, which sounds kind of gross to us, but wasn't to him. Oil on the head was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Kings got oil poured over their heads. High priests got oil poured over their heads. It was the highest form of blessing, wasn't it? 
So David says, when someone reproves me, it's like the highest form of blessing. And if I want to be blessed, I shouldn't say no to that. I should gladly accept that. Now, this is the problem, of course. Uh, In our carnality, we want people to say nice things to us and to make us comfortable typically right where we are. And that's usually not a good thing. Now, guys, we, we for sure, we want to be able to comfort each other, right, when we need comforting. That's a good thing. We draw near to someone else who needs comfort and we comfort them. That's good. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about as life flows on and things happen and I say things or you do things and maybe some one of us is getting a little bit off the path. You remember we said last week, the path of the righteous in Proverbs is straight ahead. We're starting to turn to the right or the left. David said the best thing that can happen is if someone that knows me and loves me will strike me verbally with kindness by reproving me, by telling me the truth, by challenging me. Best thing that could happen. Now, if someone does that to me or to you, he's just reminded himself, don't refuse it. It's a blessing. But there's a reason he's reminding himself, isn't there? Because we don't want to hear it usually. This is like discipline in Hebrews 12. No discipline in the moment seems good, joyful. No, it's hard. It's later that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Reproof and rebuke, correction verbally, it's just like discipline. If someone comes up to me and they say, hey Mike, I think you blew it on what you said or what you did. Well, I do feel a little bit assaulted there, don't I? It's like, this does not feel good. What do you mean I blew it? You know, what, what do you mean calling me to account? What do you mean my motives or my words or my actions are less than they should be? So typically our response is, we don't want to hear that. And we've got to be really careful about this. Have you known people in your life in which it was unsafe to offer them the, the mildest form of reproof? Do you, maybe you are one of those people. I've known a few in my life. And you know what happens? They make themselves unavailable for correction. And what they've done is they've cut off from themselves one of the ways that God would help them grow and they would be liberated. So I'm thinking of conversations I've had with people. Right now, these are in the moment, you know? And I realize I would like to be helpful. And I know if this person could see this the way others see it, the way God sees it, and could respond, they would be liberated. But I know because of history that when I bring this up, I pretty much can predict the outcome. Cold shoulder, the silent treatment from some, or others, angry response, verbal fighters, they're just going to verbally fight back and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, and who are you anyway, etc., etc. Those folks have cut off from themselves what David says is one of the highest forms of blessing that someone, a friend that knows me, that cares about me, would do the hard thing and would do violence to me by reproving me. We were in an elder meeting, I think it was just this last week, and one of the brothers said, and this not for the first time, I I couldn't tell you, this has been semi-regular. He said, if you guys see me out of line, would you please say something? If you see me out of line, if you see an attitude that concerns you, Would you say something to me? Don't let me keep going. You know, our sins typically, some of them at least, 
are in our blind spots. Some sins we know. I, I cultivate this sin. I have trouble with this area of life. I sin. But other areas of our sin we're ignorant to. And if someone else doesn't come up and tell us about it, we're not going to know about it. So this brother was saying, you guys, you don't just have permission. I'm asking you to give me the violence of the righteous reproof or question or rebuke. As you see me getting out of line, would you do me that favor? Would you be a true friend and would you speak the truth and love to me? I've told the story before, but it, it fits so neatly. Years ago when we were buying the house that we're currently in, 22 years ago, uh, we'd worked with a realtor. He was a fun guy, delightful guy. And we've put a contract in on this house. This house has been empty for over a year. It's empty. And we're trying to negotiate moving out of our house. And could we just put a few things in that garage? It's empty. Deal's not closed. And, and I'm getting frustrated. Uh, things aren't going my way. And so I say to my realtor... I said, what is the problem here? And he just looked me right in the eye and he said, Mike, you're the problem. <laughs> and I, you know, emotionally at the time, I really felt like I'd been slapped in the face. I was stunned. And then he explained, he said, Mike, if I were their realtor, I would tell them the same thing. Possessions, nine parts, nine-tenths of the law or whatever. If your stuff is in the house, you have a claim on the house even though the contract's not signed, the money hasn't been handed over, I'd tell them exactly the same thing. Well, when he did that for me, it liberated me. And then it was like, oh, okay, I get it now. If he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have seen it. And I still would have just been just frustrated that someone won't do what seems to me to be a very easy thing. Years later... I ran into my friend Ken and his son. We were doing some business together. And I told Ken that story for his son's benefit, of course. And Ken blushes red, looks at the floor and shakes his head. And he says, oh, Mike, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and I told him, Ken, it was absolutely the best thing you could have done for me. It liberated me from my thoughts in the moment that weren't connected to reality. I was really thankful. It set me free. Do the people that you know well, do those people whose opinion you respect, do they know they have permission to give you the violence of the righteous? To speak reproof to you? The people who know you well, do they know that it's safe to come to you and say, hey, I saw you doing something, I heard you say something. Are you okay? That sounded off. What's going on? Do they know that it's safe? Have you ever invited other people as our brother did in our meeting, have you invited them by saying, hey, if you see something askew in my life, would you be a friend? And would you speak up and let me know? Would you at least ask me the question? You know, we never have to assume we know everything. We can ask the question, though. I saw this. I heard that. What's going on? Would you mind clarifying? I'm concerned for you. You can always ask a question. But are we willing to do that for each other, to offer the violence of the righteous? Proverbs 12.1 says this, He who hates reproof is stupid. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? If you hate reproof, God says to you, you're stupid. Clue in. Why would you do that to yourself? Proverbs 13.1 says, A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer in the Bible is a person to avoid. Psalm 1, verse 1. 
Don't sit in the seat of the scoffer, the unbeliever, the hardened person. It's the scoffer who says, I don't want to hear that reproof, that rebuke. Don't say that to me. Do we want to be stupid? That's morally, that's what we're doing and that's what we're saying about ourselves if we say, by word or by action or by the silent cold shoulder to the person that's dared to ask me a question about my behavior, my attitude, my actions. Is that what we're communicating? We're just stupid, God says. Why would we be stupid? David says, no, I want to accept that. In the courtroom of your mind, can those who know you best stand as witnesses to those areas of your life and mind that need change? Am I willing to entertain that? Tim Challies in a blog from a year ago, April 15, 2013, was commenting on the Ninth Commandment and in reference to the Heidelberg Catechism, and he said this, he wrote this on his blog, the Heidelberg Catechism speaks brilliantly to the Ninth Commandment, which is, you shall not bear false witness. It challenges us not only to avoid lying, but to be people who speak the truth and who are horrified by deceit and misinformation as much as we are with outright lying. It gives us no leeway when we speak or blog or tweet rashly. Here is its answer to the question, what is required in the ninth commandment? That I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter, nor slanderer speaking behind someone's back that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil. Again, this is a sin that's just from the pit of hell. Unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. When someone shares a negative story with you about someone else, do you challenge them as to the trustworthiness of that story? Upon what do you know that to be true? What's the basis for sharing that and passing that along? How do you know that's true? Let me wind down with 1 Kings 22. In the case of Ahab and Jezebel, You know, we tend to reap what we sow in life. You'll you'll probably find that if you're a person that tends to spread false, negative things about other people, you'll probably find that that same element will be brought to bear in your own life. And in the life of King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, those folks who dealt in false witness and slander against someone else to their death would be brought to their own death through believing lies as well. That's 1 Kings 22. And if you remember the story, King Ahab is talking to his friends and he says, hey, Ramoth Gilead, that city should be ours. The Syrians took it. I want to go take it back. That belongs to us. And so he brings his false prophets forward and say, guys, what do you think? Should I go up? And they all say the same thing. They say, oh yeah, king, go up. Well, King Jehoshaphat is foolishly with King Ahab here. They're sitting in the gate of Samaria. And Jehoshaphat says, uh, do you happen to have anybody here who knows Yahweh? Who knows the true and living God? Who might speak to us from God instead of these guys? And so they're going to call for Micaiah. And Ahab says, well, I don't really like him because anytime he speaks, it's negative. Now, this is the wickedest king in the history of Israel. Right? So they, they go down to Micaiah and they say, listen, this is the deal. 
All the prophets have already spoken. You're the last one. They've all been favorable towards the king's desire to go up and fight Syria at Ramoth Gilead. So just say the same thing. And Micaiah says this. He says, this is the deal. I'll speak what the Lord says. In the court of the kings, I will speak the truth because I'm being brought in as a witness. I'm Yahweh's witness to the kings of Israel and Judah about what they should do. And so I will tell the truth. And so Micaiah goes in and he says facetiously, Oh, go up, king. Go up and conquer. Now Ahab knows he's just having him on. So he says, really, what's the real deal? And Micaiah says, uh, you're going to be killed in the battle going up to Ramoth Gilead. That's the deal. God's already appointed it. You're dead. You're toast. You're history. In fact, in the courts of heaven, God said that He would send a lying spirit to put in the mouth of your false prophets and you'd choose to believe them and not me. The king who dealt in lies will be dead because of lies. And so the king, as he's leaving, says, hey, lock up that Micaiah, feed him bread and water until I get back. And of course, Micaiah says, if you come back at all, God has not spoken by me. And he didn't come back. And Micaiah said, the dogs will lick your blood in the same place that Naboth, the one you murdered through false witness and slander, where the dogs licked his blood in that place of public execution, the dogs will lick up your blood too. The one who specialized in false witness and slander and lies himself died over false witness, slander, and lies. Guys, there's nothing to be had in dealing with slander and lies. God keep us far away from the hateful sin of slander and the small-minded thinking by which we try to enlarge ourselves by making others smaller. God help us to be those whose violence against others is the faithful wounding of friends from hearts set on peace. Father God, You are the author of all that's true and noble and desirable. And Lord, would You enlarge in us the Spirit of Your Son Jesus such that we really do love truth and that we love truth-telling. Lord, such that lies and slander and false witness in whatever variations or shades of gray they may appear are those things like You, Father, that we hate, that we loathe, that we refuse to be a part of. And Lord, if, if there are amends to be made by us going up and apologizing to others and asking them forgiveness for being part of variations of slanders or lies, would You give us the courage to do that? Lord, would You help us to aim for peace? Thank You for loving us and saving us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, Amen.